Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. And solar, as some people will face solar, and why we embrace this because we know it's we have to coexist now. While some industries or utilities are like pushing back, saying, you know, it's grid defection. You know, people want to get off the grid now, and batteries will allow that. I think in the future, if we can make it so we can coexist, I think we'll be much better off. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs who are building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Today is episode 107, and this one is a doozy. I have been working hard to try to bring you something more than just a one-sided interview. And today's conversation is a first for Suncast, so hold on to your hats. We're going to explore a first-of-its-kind solar project deployed earlier this year by the city of Sterling, Massachusetts, through the eyes of both the developer of the project, Orazus Energy, and the city manager responsible for making the energy purchasing decision. So get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. The Sterling Community Solar Plus Energy Storage Project utilized community solar program guidelines from the Massachusetts Department of Energy Resources to design a subscription program for ratepayers that is in line with state policy. It was interconnected and turned on back in March of this year, 2018, and it represented the first such installation in Massachusetts. The project couples a one megawatt AC rooftop solar installation with a one megawatt, two megawatt hour energy storage system to deliver an annual baseload of 1.7 megawatt hours of dispatchable clean energy to the town's ratepayers. It was developed and is owned by Origis Energy, and today's conversation is with Origis and with the city of Sterling. We really dig into the importance, not only of a sound development process, but of building strong relationships supported with a keen understanding of the stakeholders of a project. I'd like to thank Oleg Popovsky, my friend over at Bragawat, for suggesting that I do more customer-centric interviews. Well, here you go, my friend. This is Fruit of that conversation. I hope that you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed putting it together. Today on Suncast, we welcome a development and energy industry veteran, Josh Tigeser from Origis Energy. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Indeed, indeed. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Josh, Josh is a developer of energy assets and he works for Origis. Many of you probably know that Origis has been in the U.S. for a while, has developed some large-scale and DG solar assets. And Josh is the director of development focused on integrating energy storage. One of the reasons that I reached out to Josh, thanks to Glenna Wiseman, is that we have this first-of-a-kind project in Massachusetts, or first-of-its-kind for Massachusetts, that I really wanted to dig into a little deeper. And the project is in Sterling, Mass. So today we're going to talk a little bit about this solar plus storage project, but we're going to look at it through the lens of 
doing project development writ large and how the project came about, etc. So Josh, you ready for that? Sure thing. Let's do it. Well, we're also going to hear today from two others integral to this story. Yes, he came into my office. Uh, I think he came like with the town hall first and then they sent him here. He was researching, you know, some solar and you could tell within, you know, a minute of meeting Josh, he knew what he was talking about. He seemed to get it. You know, when I say get it, it's a public power perspective of, you know, we work for the ratepayers. Our job is to, you know, good rates, reliable service for the ratepayers. And he understood that, like, right off the bat, that what we were looking to do, and, and it was a very good relationship. And we, we had been dealing with multiple vendors on, on our next project. And his perspective, where he came from on it, and, you know, of course, the rate for the ratepayers is always the top thing. You just felt comfortable with them, that you could get it done with them. That is Sean Hamilton, the general manager for Sterling Municipal Light Department. And he was responsible for leading the city's selection process for this project. Yeah, Josh and I, we both worked together at our previous jobs at Semper Energy. And whenever I was being recruited here at Origin, I was you know about halfway through the process. I brought Josh in. I said, Josh, I need you to come with me when I came over here. So Josh and I started energy storage development at Sempra and then came over here and started the development side. You know, Josh does the development side and I do all the supply chain side and, you know, work with Josh, helping him out on the strategy and so forth. But he does the very much the boots on the ground, talking to the people, knocking on doors, getting contracts. And I do the upside things, putting together our, our supply chain and, and lining up those guys. And that's the voice of Michael Foster, Director of Procurement for Origis Energy. And he was an integral member in helping secure the overall success of this project as well. We'll hear more about that in a bit. But for now, let's learn a little more about Josh Tigeser and his approach to greenfield solar development. Could you give us a little bit of a feel for how you got into the energy industry in, in general? Sure. Glad to. Been in the energy industry for quite some time now. I guess it's almost 15 years, so time flies. I started in actually residential development ages ago, focused on that in college. And then uh, when there was a downturn in the, the residential market, I, uh, I said, where is there some real opportunity for growth and you know advancement? And energy jumped out. You know, developing homes and subdivisions is a lot like developing solar fields and energy storage mm-hmm. facilities. So, got in with our local utility, San Diego Gas and Electric, and then was fortunate enough to be able to transfer down to headquarters at Semper Energy for quite a few years. And then uh, did solar, a little bit of wind, and energy storage projects there as well. Sweet. I understand you spent a lot of time hopping the islands. Yeah. Luckily, um, we we were developing some some solar assets there as well as we have an existing wind farm on Maui, which was uh, pretty fun, pretty fun to uh, spend some time over there. You know, so it's not every day I get to have someone on the show who has been directly responsible for leading development on hundreds of megawatts of projects. And I understand that you also have been involved in development of about a gigawatt of new utility scale solar and wind. Would you help us understand a little bit from your perspective the core skills that you see related with this role of greenfield renewable energy development? Yeah, sure thing. I mean, I, I don't think there's a, a one solution, but I think, you know, at least how, how I see it is, you know, you have to look at a project in its whole. You have to be 
going to do your homework up front and understand that, you know, Massachusetts is different than Colorado, which is different than California, which is different than, than Hawaii. And how you approach each of those different markets uh, should definitely be different as well. But, you know, understanding early on kind of what it takes land-wise, being able to negotiate with landowners, understanding the land process in terms of leases, purchases, easements, title work, all of that is critically important. Mm-hmm. And then also being able to go out and meet with the various stakeholders on projects early on to get their support and see what's really needed. Right. I mean, I think if you're a developer that says, hey, this is the solution, I'm just going to going to try to slam it down someone's throat. I'm not a proponent of that. I'm more of the collaborator and and saying, hey, you know what, what makes sense from early on and working towards that same goal. Well, one of the things that stands out to me from your role in particular with Origis, you know, you're based in San Diego. There's a lot of development in the Western region. In fact, your uh, LinkedIn page says that you're directly responsible for development in the Western United States. Ironically, we're talking about a project in the <laughs> Northeast. So right. as a developer, how do you, and I'm familiar with the Origins team, but for those who aren't, maybe lay out the scope of, of where you fit within the Origins team and how you think about market development. Yeah, the, the Origins team, we kind of have the solar group, solar biz dev guys and project dev guys. And then we have... A pretty small energy storage team, but really proud of our experience and what we've been able to accomplish. We have Paul Schmerchansky up in San Francisco, great recent addition to the team. And then our managing director, Ed Moses, is based out of our headquarters in Miami. And then I don't want to overlook our kind of our optimization financial analyst, engineer, Brian Dalby, who you know, I think provides a tremendous amount of value and, and value add to Origis in terms of kind of what sets us apart and how we can make our, our storage systems fit the need for different off takers. But in terms of kind of different markets, you know, I, I came on board Origis to kind of focus on the West, but then, you know, obviously times change and, and markets get bigger and smaller. And, you know, with the addition of Paul, it's kind of how do we break up the entire energy storage market across the United States? And we work through it internally. You know, he's more comfortable with certain markets I'm more comfortable with. And geographically, you know, it's a challenge to be up in the Northeast. Being in San Diego, it's a long flight, but it's definitely a, a booming market and one that, that we see as a lot of potential. You have those mandate-driven markets like a, a Massachusetts is, a California. Other states have these storage mandates. They're really enticing to get in and really see what we can do. Just for those who don't understand, mandate market means that the investor-owned utility or the, the local utility has set or it has been set for them a minimum requirement to procure a certain amount of renewable energy. Is that, that's what you mean by mandate? That's exactly right. Whether it be solar or storage or wind, you know, there are specific mandates for specific states. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm specifically focusing on the, the states that have storage mandates. Got it. So as you sat down with a small but broad scope team, did you just map out in the U.S. that where there were mandate markets? Was that your initial approach? Yeah, initial approach is, is you know, mandates are, are one factor that we look at. There's also the, the factor that, you know, Orgis has done a lot of work across the U.S. and has been you know, extremely successful in the, the solar line of business and not leveraging or taking advantage of those successes and those established relationships would be 
would be pretty foolish. So, you know, another key component of where we focus our biz dev efforts is really, you know, where do we have strong relationships already established? And let's see if we can can work with those existing clients to uh, come up with another solution. You know, the notion of relationships as a core strength seems to come up over and over in our conversations, not just with Josh, but also with Sean and Michael. And I want to point out that as we unpack this project and dig into how it came to fruition, one of the things we'll pay particular attention to is how these relationships unfolded and how Josh used them to his advantage to secure stakeholders and this project. You know, something I have wondered, and it seems like a perspective you might be able to embellish on, is a lot of folks assume that major developers who are going out and winning RFPs with utilities are establishing beachheads. Therefore, the first project doesn't necessarily have to be profitable as long as it's not terribly painful because it establishes a particular strength or a beachhead, as, as we mentioned before, with that utility or within a certain marketplace. Do you feel that that has been a part of Origins' strategy or the developer strategy in the U.S. up to now? And is that something that you see as a successful strategy, i.e. establish a beachhead, even if it's a potentially at a loss, so that you can dig deeper and have primacy with that customer to offer different services? That actually is a very good question, and, and I have seen that. I think that is pretty prevalent especially in burgeoning markets like energy storage. My company, my CEO is, you know, not in the really the business of quote unquote losing money. So, you know, our projects need to make economic sense. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to go out and do projects at a loss just to, to get business. Some of our returns maybe will be a little lower to begin with, but it does need to be, you know, positive. But I do see that, quite frequently in the market. It's a challenge in all honesty because when people do that, it establishes a baseline for what other utilities in that region across the US, et cetera, now see headlines and now say, hey, this is what I should expect, right? With prices declining, it it may not be the, the hardest challenge to overcome, But it is a challenge when people do that because a lot of times folks don't dig into the the full aspects of a contract a lot of times because they can't right there because they're redacted. But that is definitely the case where people see headlines and then you have to answer that next time you're in a meeting when someone says, hey, I I saw this project with company X and it's for two thirds the cost, right? What's going on here? It seems to me like a strategy as we were exploring is you find a market where you see there's a lot of follow-on opportunity and therefore Correct. it's easily easily justifiable to shareholders or board members or executives or credit that's, committee team. <laughs> that's, that's very, very true. And yeah. in all honesty, though, I mean, certain off-takers, you know, I, I went out and visited countless people in Massachusetts, for example, and, mm-hmm. you know, some of them, you know, we could have presented a project at a loss and they would have still said no just because they had no interest slash no need in storage, right? So even companies that do want to go out and say, hey, I'm going to just try to throw projects out at a loss, you, know, you have to find the right off taker. You have to find you know, the more progressive, the more forward thinking you know, general manager or director of power supply, procurement, et cetera, that is really thinking more, not just tomorrow, but next year and the year after. So Josh, we 
have talked a bit about the origination process and how you think about it as a team. That you're based in California and there are projects nationwide, one of the things I really wanted to understand was how and why you and your team selected Massachusetts. Of course, we're going to talk about the Sterling Mass Project, but can you talk a bit about sitting in your office in San Diego, the prospecting process of choosing a market and then how you went about within Massachusetts narrowing down the options for how you guys would deploy a project? You know, like, like we touched on briefly, you know, Massachusetts having the, the mandate. So it, it was right off the bat, interesting market for us to take a little bit of a deeper dive into. There's resources available to see per state how much of the state is served by investor-owned utilities versus co-ops versus munis, municipalities. Mm-hmm. And every state's different. What's interesting about Massachusetts in terms of a storage market is that there's a lot of municipalities. Municipalities generally are obviously smaller, smaller load, but generally when you have the number of municipalities that you have in Massachusetts and the mandate for energy storage and solar, you can generally see they're more of a progressive state, right? Mm -hmm. From there, it's just doing research and saying, okay, where are these different utilities, are these different municipalities located? What's their, their general load, both base and peak? What's their you know, summer versus winter? How much existing solar do they have on their grid? So you can see the ones that are getting higher penetrations of solar in relation to what their peak load is, mm-hmm. that those ones are gonna be more interested in thinking about storage. When you look at their load data and you look at, you know, what they have in basin for generation, right? Mm-hmm. So whatever they don't have inside their service territory, what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to procure the ISO from essentially... From the market. But right. I want to make sure I understand before you keep before you move forward. So <clears throat> when you look at what their generation capacity is, which is publicly available, versus the demand and the growth of demand over time or what the forecast of demand is. Is that what you mean? So the balance between their cell phone generation versus their demand? Correct. And you can see generally what they're getting hit with in terms of demand charges, right? Mm -hmm. From And it's, it's a monthly demand charge based off of the peak of the month. This might sound familiar to any of you CNI developers out there, the notion of monthly demand charges. What Josh is referring to is how the Muni here is getting charged from the system operator for their own demand as a municipal utility. Much the same way your CNI customers are build demand. So if you're able to go in and provide a solution to these these municipalities and say, hey, you know, if we add a, a one megawatt, two megawatt hour, for example, like we did in Sterling, other municipalities that may be, you know, a five megawatt hour, depending on, on what their peaks are, and show them, you know, dollars and cents wise, hey, if you're able to reduce your monthly peak, this, these are the dollars that you can be saving. And it's enticing. And yeah. Sean Hamilton, the GM there at, at Sterling, you know, they're, they're smart guys. They run that analysis themselves as well. So, when you can get on the same page and, you know, again, work collaboratively with them in terms of sizing, say, hey, here's our suggestion, here's our analysis of what we think works, right, and makes sense for you guys, and then do a kind of a, a back and forth, you know, and then ultimately end up with a sizing that, that, you know, hopefully works for us as well as solves that municipality's need. I don't particularly want to dive too deep on the IOU side in the, within the scope of today's discussion, but I do want to see 
how you conceived of your approach to finding the right municipality in Massachusetts. So let's drill down specifically sure. to the roadshow and how you and the Origins team came to Sterling and, or, or, rather, or vice versa. Sure. Yeah, sure thing. So, I mean, it starts with just exploratory calls to the different GMs at the at the munis and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of explaining who we are, what we do as Origis, kind of our our experience in terms of solar, in terms of storage, you know, what we feel we can bring and, you know, request that first initial in-person meeting. And, you know, when, when I get a certain number of municipalities to bite, you know, it makes sense to say, Hey, let's get out there and let's go, let's go and, and drive around and meet a bunch of GMs. Right? Yeah, but, and before we get too far, what does it look like for a municipality or a GM to bite? <laughs> Generally a positive conversation. Some GMs, like I was saying a little bit earlier, want, want nothing to do with storage, want nothing to do with solar. It's worked for the past 10, 20 years. It's going to continue to work. And if they, they really have no interest in talking, you can get that pretty clearly from yeah. them. If there is that, hey, hey, the door is cracked, you know, then, then you know, we'll definitely push for the meeting. And yeah. sometimes the door is wide open. Sometimes some of these, these municipalities have been thinking about it, like, like Sterling, they, they already have a system and they, they know how it can, as a standalone battery, can benefit their grid. So, yeah, I mean, it's some, it, there's, a, there's a range, but if the door is even cracked, I'm going to I'm gonna try to push it open. So how did Josh know that the door was open at Sterling Municipal Light District? Well, when you're dealing with a pro energy manager, like Sterling's Sean Hamilton, you can tell pretty quickly by listening to the way he talks. Here, have a listen for yourself. Yeah, back about 2012, when customers were coming in and talking about uh, when the Massachusetts SREC program was developed, and it's a very, very good program, and customers were coming to us and talking about it. And I would be honest with you, at the time, I didn't know a lot about solar and the projects. And I started seeing what the SREC was up to, and I said, you know, we should get, you know, wrap our heads around this. In response to that, we you know, went to the board and said, you know, those with the means are going to have solar, while the rest of our customers are going to help support those with the means who have solar who are becoming an intermittent customer at the same time. At that time, we decided to put in a large-scale projects. The first was a one megawatt. We partnered with one of our larger customers on their land to put a one megawatt solar project. Right after that, we put in another two megawatts. So on a 13-megawatt load, we had uh, almost three megawatts of solar which was working great for us. We could manage it well. Then you realize there's people in town that just could not have access to solar. The solar we put in benefited everyone, peak shaving, uh, the low-cost PV benefits. But as the peak is shifting out further and further, later in the day, I should say, you can see that the storage now is is more important than ever. Um, So we're looking for a combination of community storage, solar, to get uh, great payers who couldn't put this on their roofs, the opportunity to to, participate. And that, that's where this, this idea came around. Uh, about 2015-16, we started looking into this project. This community solar just gives everyone a little bit of ownership. Uh, it's, it's shared in the town. It's generated in town. We produce the power during the day. We store it and then use it at night. That's what we've been doing. So as you're thinking about this, you've got to justify spending resources and time and, and traveling from California to Massachusetts. How many municipalities made it worth it for you to kind of go on this road show? Well, the first roadshow was probably, I don't know, six or eight munis that I went and talked to. And since then, I've talked to, to countless more, you know, with the experience with Sean and Sterling, you know, word, word clearly spreads. If, you know, we're doing a good job, if Sean's happy, if the off-taker's happy, then, then that, that spreads across the GMs in that area. 
Walk me through that first in-person meeting with Sean. Now, I understand that Sean is a bit of a rock star within the Massachusetts market. You could call it luck. You could call it discernment. But you you come across Sterling and Sean Hamilton, who is a bit of, a, you know, they're, they're, Sterling is an award-winning municipality within Massachusetts. But walk me through the first or maybe second conversation you were having with Sean where you start talking about the economic value of bringing on yet another solar plus storage project. You know, I had great conversations with Sean from the get-go. So with him, you know, to the point earlier, the door was wide open, which was great. So going into the the first meeting with him was was pretty much a piece of cake because, mm-hmm. you know, he knows storage, he knows the value behind it. What, what it really got into, and it got into pretty quickly in the first meeting was, you know, after I, I went through kind of my experience or just his experience, which I think what he, he was impressed with, you know, it got into more of a detailed discussion pretty quick in terms of, hey, what size do you think works? And from there it was, Let me go crunch some specific numbers after I gave him kind of a high level. This is what I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. which I think was on board with what what he was thinking. But then we we came back and crunched some real numbers. And then at your point of meeting two, right, we're able to sit down with him and say, hey, this is what we see as a sizing and as some pricing numbers for you. And both of which were kind of right in line with where he was hoping the numbers would come out. What was informing his perspective or his hope of where the numbers would come out? That's probably a, a better direct question for him, but uh-huh. I think I think it's because you know of his past knowledge of the market. He has some great vendors nearby to him mm-hmm. that, that I'm sure can give him some numbers. Well, touche, Josh. Perhaps you're right, and I should ask this question to Sean instead. I think primarily, you know, the can-do attitude. You know, we we have we have access to solar panels because, as you know, the the tariff discussions were going on at that time. They were in stock. They have them available. They had a team lined up. They had a design. They had a a place to put it. We're a small little town, thirty-two square miles in the central mass. We had fifty-two vendors come through this town. There was a reasonableness about Josh. You know that you know they didn't shoot for the sky. Some guys figure they're going to come in. They're going to walk in and say, "Here's what we want to make." Like we have a rate structure we're trying to protect, and they understood that. that that's key. And we just constant contact. Josh was always there. Anything, jumped on the phone or sent an email and got a response. He's he's, he's a great advocate for the industry. We looked at a variety of things. Uh, we looked at us buying the battery storage outright and putting it, with, you know, and then reaching out to the vendors for prices on just just the solar, the community solar aspect of the project. Or you know us buying the whole project and put it in. Uh, we were a government entity. We're not. We're tax exempt, so a lot of the tax incentives go away, which is you know a great you know incentives for the projects. Um, we looked at all those numbers and we couldn't get to where we were comfortable with the number for the ratepayers. And when he came in with a number that was you know lower than our best, it was a no-brainer. We had someone who was going to, with their knowledge, expertise, build the projects, manage the project, and we would purchase the output and work together you know to build it. You know, the interconnect, we would do the interconnect and stuff. It was just their prices were right in line with, you know, we look at the market. That's what we look at. We look at the market. Where can I go out and buy a power strip? What's the price for 10, 15 years? You know, it's, it's not a renewable source. Uh, it's not carbon free. But there are risks on the other side. You know, we're in New England. These solar arrays get covered with snow. <laughs> you know, intermittent resource, the rains. You know, we've had a lot of rain here the last few weeks. You know, I'm watching some interesting production numbers. Three years ago, we had 110 inches of snow in three months. So all of it was buried. You look at those risks and rewards, it just, it just seemed to work, you know. 
the numbers worked enough that we could have a cushion and put it aside and go into the market when we had to, to to cover those times. I know you're listening to this episode because you're tired of doing things the old way and looking for a new approach. And that is precisely why my friends at CPS America, aka Chant Power Systems, have agreed to help make this fresh content possible for you. See, they believe in the power of change and the importance of trying something before others catch on. They are the U.S. market share leader of three-phase string inverters, pioneering that approach since before it was cool. With over two gigawatts shipped in America, Chint's feature-rich, high-performance inverters and its nimble service team are ahead of the pack, just like you. If you'd like to find out what CPS can do for your CNI and utility business, reach out to me for an intro, nico at mysuncast.com. Or you can reach out to them directly and just let them know you heard it here on Suncast. Did you know going into the second meeting that he already had numbers and he'd already gotten some quotes? Yeah, at the first meeting, he was very open and said, hey, you know, this is something I, I'm, I'm really eager to do. You know, I'm impressed with, with your guys' experience. You know, let's, let's dive into the numbers and pricing a little bit deeper. So that's where... You know, we, we did our homework, we came back and, um, you know, presented something that was ultimately what he wanted to see. But going back, I think if we would have gone in and said, hey, you know, you need a 10 megawatt solar system, the meeting would have been over, right? You have to do your homework yeah. before going in, knowing what kind of range you need to be in. There were a few other constraints around what Sean wanted to accomplish, right? There's the little, yeah. the little, a little, a little problem of, monetization of some extrinsic values of the project, right? Can we talk a little bit about some of the deadlines that were, that were looming? Sure. There were a lot of challenges, but two of the main ones to your, to your point are, you know what, if, if a GM wants a certain size project, it's perfect for his grid. If there's no land available for that, then the project's not going to happen, right? In Massachusetts, is that's a very key point that it's not like Arizona or Nevada or certain markets where land is prevalent, right? Land is very, very, very hard to come by in Massachusetts. Very expensive, I imagine. Yeah, and if you can't get that land, then no matter how much somebody wants a project, they're not going to have a project. So that was one of the, the hardest challenges. First challenges to overcome was finding suitable land. And Sean was very open about that from even the get-go, first conversation of, hey, do you have land locked up, right? Because, you know, kind of the show me that you're real. And a lot of people just throw proposals out and it's not real, Right. But to your point about the SREC market, you know, the deadline behind that is, you know, SREC 2 is the, the tariff in Massachusetts that you get for solar plus storage projects. And feel free to go to mass.gov and you can you can Google that. It's uh, readily available. That program was theoretically expiring in March 31st of 2018. It has since been stepped down. But that was a hard deadline that that we as Origis knew, Sean knew, you know, to your point of all the stakeholders, the town knew, the community knew. So so everybody, you know, from the get-go knew that, hey, if this project gets drug out for months and months and months, then it's not going to happen. 
right? And, so, and for the context, more or less, when were these initial discussions happening? Yeah, it's been essentially a year ago. Our, our initial contact with uh, with Sean was uh, so July. Of, yeah. yeah, summer of 2017. Yeah, you, you knew you had about a nine month burn. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and and just for context, how long does it typically take to develop and deploy a solar plus storage asset? Considerably longer than that considerably longer depending on size right i mean mm-hmm. if you're talking large utility scale you know 20 megawatt plus and at certain voltages it's even longer because of say ordering transformers right right but yeah i was going to ask if if the storage device itself is part of the the, the critical path oh yeah for sure the one of the key components is our procurement team and the relationships we have our direct director of procurement michael foster and i have been working the the energy storage market for uh, almost 10 years now so so knowing the people, knowing you know who to go to, having the, the relationships at the highest levels was critical for success. If we were just, you know, company John Doe going in and saying, hey, LG, I need some batteries in mm-hmm. this time frame, they may not have said yes. And here's Michael Foster's perspective on that. How do we turn things on on such a quick time? I think one is relying on the partnerships that we have and the partnerships that we've had for a number of years, uh, I started working doing energy storage projects almost eight years, eight nine years ago for the utility of San Diego Gas and Electric. And some of the relationships I developed there within the industry are the people that you turn to, you know, that you know and trust that can make things happen in a hurry. So, and then both on the solar side as well, because there was a solar component to that project, and working with people you know that are hungry for the project and are, can get excited about the project because it was a smaller project in terms of energy storage, but you have to get people that, you know, jump out of their seat and are excited about something so they could be a, a good partner, but it's just too small for them. So fortunately, you know, all of our partners on this one were very excited about it. Well, speaking of getting people excited, it is notoriously difficult to procure solar modules at year's end. But one of those companies that Michael was able to get excited was REC, who supplied the solar modules to this project. Well, the, the lead time was, you know, after the first year, right? I mean, no one had any modules. And you know, granted, we didn't need a lot. We needed about a megawatt and a half. But all your big four, big five at that time were sold out. Everyone was oversold. They had nothing that they could get in for the end of the year. And unfortunately, we had a, a good relationship with REC, and they had a few stacked away in a corner, if you will. And they were able to pull those onto the project for us. And being that you know REC is a, a great manufacturer, they also didn't have you know 55 customers to try and service. You know that large line that everyone else was trying to make it out the door. We could be one of their top priorities. I think they really they really jumped on it, and made us feel like. A, we were a big customer, even though it was only a megawatt and a half order. Wow, that's great insight into how Michael helped Josh ensure that their story with the city of Sterling was believable and that they had their ducks in a row to meet the tight deadline. But there was another major challenge that Sean was also keen to expose about whether or not Origus was really ready to bring the project to fruition. So back to Josh and the ongoing negotiation with Sean. Well, I want to drill down on challenge number one. Sean knew that land availability was an issue. Sean's not going to go develop the land himself. So one of his first selection criteria was, or just proved to me that you already have some Correct. advantage on land. And that was true. You guys already had positions on land. 
in Massachusetts? We were in very advanced negotiations on land. So before I, I even go out and meet with munis, what I do is, you know, whether it's via a broker or a land agent, whoever, myself making making calls, I, I have to get someone nodding in the right direction on potential land opportunities. Otherwise, could be wasting a lot of time. Did that also drive which munis became viable options for you? It did. It, it very much did. You know, when you're looking at munis that are, are much closer to Boston, the challenge of land in Massachusetts becomes even that much more so. So I guess there's always a price, but with the higher price for land comes a less competitive project, right? Now, it should be noted here, if you're keeping up and know about the result of this project, that land doesn't always mean raw dirt. We are simply referring to real estate that's available for solar deployment. So in the case of this Sterling project, the land that Josh is actually talking about was a rooftop real estate they had been negotiating as a lease agreement. Basically, we're talking about getting a controlling position on a piece of real estate. Whether that's raw dirt or rooftop, the principles are the same. Now back to Josh. So, you know, I, I, I called and I reached out to probably, you know, I, have a, I had a great broker, Brian Johnson, uh, in, in Massachusetts. Fantastic, uh, you know, upfront assistance and, and even throughout the project to, to get it done in the time frame that we needed. We were meeting with 10 landowners weeks before trying to walk up these deals. Right. So that, that was important. And having a landowner that's willing to say, hey, I understand the time frame of this and I'm willing to work with you guys and, and let's, let's get this deal done was critically important. You're negotiating either directly or, or indirectly vis-a-vis this broker, Brian Johnson. How much of your conversation actually discloses the intention of the land use that you are moving forward? That's a great question. So, and it depends on how much time you have, right? Yeah. In, in Massachusetts, in this particular instance, I was 100% upfront. This is what we're doing, uh-huh. right? And Do you if feel not, that that compromises your negotiation position a little? Uh, for sure. A hundred percent. And a lot of landowners, they either, they saw dollar signs yeah, or, course. and then it was end of, end of discussion. Um, when you want to be five X market, right. Yeah. Or they flat out said, we can't get this done in the time frame right. because you know, ground mount development in Massachusetts is challenging both in terms of getting the landowners to agree as well as timing to make mm-hmm. that happen. Yeah. Even if you have a town that's super supportive, it's still challenging and time consuming. So our, our focus then was where can we get this cited and permitted in the time frame that we need? It's a lot of moving parts ahead of, you know, I don't want to make light of the fact that, and this is one of the reasons why I came back to, it's easy for someone listening to jump to, oh, he saw the SREC market and he decided to put together this roadshow. But from a development perspective, there's nuance. There's actually a lot of work to ensure that the roadshow is worth your time investment. And knowing that you need to have the land locked up is one of the key investments of time that developers skip over. They'll land in a meeting with the GM and get caught unaware when Sean says, okay, where's your land? Prove to me that I'm not wasting my time, which actually right. is really is really discerning and savvy from from Sean's perspective. But it's not shooting fish in a barrel just because there's a big SREC opportunity there. It, it baffles me to think, and I, I had so mu- I have so much admiration for you guys as project developers because it baffles me the number of moving parts and the synchronicity required for one of these projects to come off. 
Yeah, it's a challenge, especially the uh, the ones with the the really strict time frames and deadlines, yeah. right? Others where where you have the longer lead time. Not only you don't have to deal with all those issues, mm-hmm. but you have a little bit more breathing room. Here's Michael Foster again on the subject of timing. You know, I say all the time that in our office in San Diego, which is kind of our energy storage headquarters, we have about thirty to forty different opportunities up on the board, and as they become more real, and as we get to the point that our customers are asking for some budgetary numbers or some bids. That's kind of when I get involved and it kind of hits my radar. And so that really depends on when they want it built. But, you know, for Sterling, it was very much a quick turnaround. You know, it was, hey, I need to get numbers in in the next 30 days and then it ended up being built. But, you know, a lot of the things that we're looking at now has a bit of a larger timeline where we're putting together some proposals and they won't be built for two, three years. So anytime they go to send numbers out the door, usually I'm at least slightly involved or at least consulted on the project and I get some insight into what they're dealing with or if they need my input or opinion on the way in which they're looking to structure things. So talk to me a bit about the stakeholders. You mentioned, hey, everyone knew and was motivated towards this common goal and there's a sense of collaboration. But as a developer, how do you stratify the stakeholders and then how do you begin to navigate the stakeholder conversations independently in a way that gets everyone moving in the same direction? It's a lot of stakeholders involved. So, you know, it's personally having discussions with all of them and, you know, not beating around the bush and making the point clear that here's the deadline and showing them a project schedule that's yeah. achievable saying, Hey, you know, if we, if we are able to do points A, B, C, and D in these time frames, which I felt was realistic, then, then we can make this happen. Is there a common set that you would say are the core stakeholders that you know, as a developer, like I've got to reach out to these people, what would that list look like? Sure. Generally, like the the landowner is key, you know, the GM or person that's going to be procuring your energy, Mm -hmm. obviously key at a state level, the Department of Energy Resources to make sure that they're on the on board with, hey, this project will will qualify for, you know, these tariffs that we're assuming and and getting their head nodding in the right direction. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it comes down to the building inspector. Right, the the electrical inspector at the at the town of Sterling, the manager at the town of Sterling, the board of selectmen at the town of Sterling. So you know that at the end of the day, if Sean wants it, but you know Ross Perry, the head of the town, doesn't want it, it's going to be a real challenge to make it happen. Right, yeah. and even having the upfront discussions about, hey, these are pilot agreements that that you guys have done in Sterling before. It, pilot payment in lieu of taxes, right? We're hoping for a similar type structure and making sure they're on on board with that. Yeah, so you have to do a little bit of research to see how they have structured transactions in the past. Exactly, and if they haven't, if, if Sterling hadn't done pilot agreements for solar projects previously, then we would have had to factor in more time to get both the, the head of the town as well as, you know, in this case, the Board of Selectmen, in other places, Planning Commission, Board of Supervisors, you know, okay with the concept of a pilot agreement. And if they aren't, then that would just factor into our ultimate price that we'd be able to give to to Sean as the off-taker. So I asked Sean his perspective on Josh's approach to the stakeholders, and here's what he had to say. 
you know, when a customer comes to our town, I don't do anything more than say we're, we're interested and they, they need to do the rest of the research and find the land, negotiate with the owners, talk to the town and get those things lined up. And, and, and many of those things, that's where people leave my office and I never see them again. You know, Josh made that loop very quickly and positive feedback I got from the people in town he spoke to was, was, was pretty incredible. You know, they said he just seems very nice. He seems to understand it. You know, he didn't push back on any issues with the town. He said, let's sit down and talk about them. And I found that encouraging, you know, because we're a small town and, and we all work together. And I think that's when I get involved and we kind of work together and go through the permitting process. And we just did, I just expelled the benefits of the project to the ratepayers. You know, so it doesn't look like a big business coming into town, putting in this project, they're going to make a lot of money and leave town. The benefits are staying right here in town to the ratepayers. And I think that's important that the town understands that, and, and they do. And we've worked well with all the you know, selectmen, the wiring inspector, the planning board, all the boards that we had to work through. And if you've spoken to Josh, you understand his mannerism just, just was very smooth and very non-contentious in any items, and it just went very well. It makes it easier for, to put these projects in. So you see, as we've been saying here, the ability to build relationships and understand the various stakeholders' needs was, in fact, critical to the success of this project. Okay, on with the interview. I don't know if we need to get terribly technical or in the nitty-gritty of storage, but how do you decide which storage application to deploy and who's involved in that decision? There's several people. Our director of procurement here, I always see kind of run everything through him in terms of, you know, here's my thoughts of the, the system. And then certain vendors make sense for certain different reasons. You know, if you're going with an, an energy pa- battery versus a power battery, then you'll be focusing on the type of cells that would suffice for that use case. Can right? you be more so, specific? Yeah, I mean, if you're going for a longer duration battery, you know, hour plus, and that's more of an energy battery, then you're looking at vendors that have those batteries, have them available, you know, have the, the large factories where those are being produced. What's an example versus, of an energy battery? versus Like, like our Sterling project is an energy battery. Whereas and, if, and is it disclosed what technology you use for that project? Uh, LG, correct. LG Chem, okay. LG Chem, yeah. Yeah. And we use Greensmith as our, our integrator for Sterling. Whereas, um, you know, a power battery is a short duration battery, more of like kind of a, you think of like a shock absorber, 30 minutes or less, you know, when it's tied to like a wind farm, for example, that would be an example of a, a power battery. While Josh was thinking about what battery application was required, Michael was concerned that batteries would be available at all. If you uh, remember Towards the end of last year, we were kind of facing a battery shortage as well. So we were short on, on batteries where there wasn't a whole lot. If you needed to get anything you know, significant, if you needed 5 megawatt hours by the end of the year or even in the first quarter of next year, you weren't getting it because the demand in Korea was so high. And I'm speaking largely to two top Korean manufacturers. There just wasn't any batteries to be had. So I think what's happening now with the lead times going out with the batteries is that everyone in the industry is now broadening their horizons on other technologies beyond the Korean manufacturers and the bigger names that have been around storage for the last few years. You're seeing expanding supply chains, looking elsewhere throughout China for who else can be there to compete, you know, for a variety of different issues. One being cost of cobalt going up. So who's moving away from the the cobalt base chemistry towards maybe a iron phosphate base. So those battery companies, and then not good whenever you're 
out of batteries and you need batteries and the projects we'd expect the you know 12 week lead time on batteries now suddenly going out to 20 36 weeks on the project so that coupled with the cost is certainly a challenge and i think what everyone in the industry that i've seen doing is we're just expanding our supply base and looking to see who else can come in and compete you know it's interesting to me that you guys chose uh greensmith easily the largest player of their kind integrating solar and storage now part of Wartzilla, a huge balance sheet how much does their acquisition by Wartzilla influence your decision to go with them versus just their core competence in in storage in all honesty for this project it was a core competence it was you know i've known those guys for years and years and years it's and their backyard great, too yeah and and they've done lots of projects you know we've done projects with them before so there was, there was a comfort level and mm-hmm. and to your point earlier about you know kind of establishing the beachhead we don't want to do that with a new company on our first project Right. right. So, so going with people that we're comfortable with on our first project, knowing the criticality of the deadline, definitely had some factor to weigh into that. If it was a project where we had another year in terms of a deadline, it would have been open more to, to different players. I'd love to hear from your perspective as maybe uh, an outgoing thought. If you, as a seasoned project developer, might provide some level of advice for project developers who look to you as an example or a mentor. You know, you might not get the chance to talk to everyone one-on-one, but if you could give some advice, what common pitfalls or roadblocks do you see developers, in particular with storage, running into that you kind of shake your head at? Like you've already skinned your knees there and and you would help folks save time by just raising these flags and saying, hey guys, (laughs) learn from me. Yeah, for sure. I uh, I have definitely skinned my knees a couple of times, for sure. But uh, but I think to, to our discussion earlier, it, it really it really goes to doing your homework up front. Don't just think that because you read some articles or see headlines about there there potentially being a market mm-hmm. to just go in and dive in head first. My sincere advice is to take the upfront time to do your homework, do your homework in depth, feel confident about going into an off taker with a solution. Mm. If, if you don't feel comfortable about that, then I question even going into the meeting. So know your off taker, know what can benefit them, can benefit their system. And, you know, take the time to go in prepared because if you're not mm-hmm. prepared, it'll come out. Very sage advice. Before we run, I often like to probe how you keep the saw sharp, as it were. I believe that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. I'd love to hear what's on your nightstand and what sort of what books are you digging into lately? So I don't have a whole lot of hard copy books. Um, I do do a lot of... Uh, Audible? Kind of- Audible or reading of, you know, just just journals, you know, GTM uh-huh. or, um, you know, Wall Street Journal. But the, the one book that I'm actually reading, which isn't too much related to uh, to energy, is um, it's called Stress Tests. It's the Timothy Geithner uh, book on the financial crisis. So that's what I'm actually reading right now. Oh, very, very interesting. Very cool. Well, maybe we'll get you to do a, a book report on it. <laughs> it's it's just- a pretty long book. <laughs> So you mentioned GTM and Wall Street Journal. Are there specific go-tos that you sort of built into your routine as places that you go and read to keep you ahead of the curve on what's happening in our industry? 
Yeah, there's a ton of publications. Um, you know, the SNL. What's SNL? Now it's called Wood McKenzie, I think. I think ah, they okay. merged with, with Wood McKenzie, but it's a, uh, a publication um, that, that we subscribe to. Okay. That's probably the main one that, that I keep on track with. But yeah, there's there's a ton out there. But in terms, more in terms of um, reading stuff, I, I'm more of a proponent of kind of reaching out and gauging the interest from different off-takers and having those conversations mm-hmm. and kind of testing the, the, the water that way. I think Very if cool. I if I wait to, to read it, then someone else is probably already knocked on that door. Indeed, indeed. I'll ask one final question. Josh, as a business professional in our industry, what habit or consistent practice has given you the greatest impact on your work? <sighs> the habit that's given me the greatest impact on my work is just being consistent and thorough with what I do. I have a pretty regimented approach, I would say, to development and staying true to that, whether it be in Massachusetts, Arizona, or California, Hawaii, any market out there, if I'm able to check all the boxes that I have to check, then I'm going to have that comfort level when I go and I meet with uh, the potential off-takers, which I think uh, helps with success. Indeed. Indeed, it does. The checklist approach, I think, is a fantastic habit. And even if it's a mental checklist, I find that consummate professionals like yourself who have success in the market look to that success. Uh, as we said before, success leaves clues. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have Mr. Josh Tigeser of Origis on the show. Really appreciate the perspective on how this project came together in Sterling, Massachusetts. One megawatt, I think one megawatt hour, right? One megawatt, two megawatt hour. Two megawatt hour. First of its kind project, not just for Origis, but also for a municipality in Massachusetts to couple solar plus storage in one project. The way that it came together was fascinating and time constrained. And I think we've all learned a lot today about the reasons that, in fact, it was successful. Thank you very much for the time. Appreciate it. Indeed. Congratulations. And we look forward to seeing more great stuff from you and the Origis team. Sounds good. Well, Solar Warrior, that was fun. I hope you like this different perspective and interview style. To be honest, it was extremely time-consuming. So I'm not sure how often I can commit to doing that, but I personally really enjoyed putting it together, and I hope to hear your feedback on it. You know, it's always sad for me to say goodbye, but I want you to know there are lots of ways to keep in touch. If you like being notified of the new episodes, upcoming events that we're doing, courses, webinars, etc. Be sure to join the Suncast mailing list. You can go to mysuncast.com or you could just text Suncast, S-U-N-C-A-S-T, to the number 345345. It's that easy. Just text Suncast to 345345 and you'll be added to our mailing list. You'll also get the free webinar guide as my free gift. As always, if there's a topic or expert you think should be on Suncast, please shoot me an email or a LinkedIn message and I would love to reach out to you or to those that you suggest. My email as well is nico at mysuncast.com. Hey, it's almost Solar Power International time. If you are headed to Anaheim at the end of the month that is ahead, please let me know so that we can schedule some time together. If you're on my email list, then you'll be getting for sure the invite to any event that I host, which we should be doing a Suncast Tribe event, and I'm considering as well putting together a LATAM-specific dinner 
one of the nights, probably Tuesday night. Probably both of those will be Tuesday night, to be honest. So stay tuned. Since you're still with me, here's a little snippet from the next Suncast episode. Ultimately, if the integrator is willing to wrap a Chinese battery manufacturer, then that's the way in which you know, we need to move things from a procurement standpoint. If that voice sounded familiar, well, it's because it's none other than Michael Foster, who we just heard on today's episode. I got so much value out of my chat with Michael on solar procurement that I decided to make it a standalone Tactical Tuesday. So be sure to tune in on Tuesday to hear more on procurement from a real industry veteran. Boy, you must really love hearing my voice if you're still hanging around. So thank you. I love you too. I'd like to give a quick shout out to New Tribe member Eric Posse, selected as a 40 under 40 Midwest Energy entrepreneur for the fantastic work that they've been doing in Minnesota and beyond. Way to go, Eric. Good job. And hey, if you haven't already, would you, like Eric, consider becoming a member of the Suncast Energy Tribe? Every week now, we're getting new members and I'm hatching new ways that I can support you in your entrepreneurial journey in the solar industry. To all my current tribe members, I wish you much love, great success. And if you're not there yet, you can join them. Just go to mysuncast.com forward slash member to see what it's all about. I look forward to formally welcoming you into my tribe. And thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.